welcome to the latest Placetech podcast, brought to you in association with TP Bennett, headquartered in London with a Manchester office serving the north of England. TP Bennett is a multidisciplinary design practice of 320 staff, focusing on architecture, interiors, and planning in the UK and internationally. For more information on TP Bennett and the services it provides, visit tpbennett.com. Today, I'm talking with Vicky Odilly from TP Bennett, Simon Wilkes from Legal and General, and Mark Turndrup from Waterman. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, Vicky, you produced a seriously impressive piece of work with TP Bennett, the Net Zero Carbon Roadmap. Um, tell us how that came about. Yeah, well, it's been an interesting journey. As a business, we're prioritizing sustainability in many different ways. So we've got an in-house uh, team which targets sustainable, healthy, equitable design. And so we've got a range of initiatives that we've been developing, looking at uh, across all of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. But we wanted to really ensure the buildings that we're designing now don't need to be retrofitted in the near future to address the climate emergency, and specifically the net zero carbon targets for new buildings of 2030 or all buildings by 2050. And I think uh, we realise the importance of testing those targets against a range of typologies. So even before we had clients asking for it, we wanted to know ourselves what that meant. We wanted to make sure we've got the skills in-house. So that meant that we took a building that we had already designed quite some time ago in the centre of London. It was a commercial office building. And we had a a full BIM model for it. So we had all the information about it, um, including, uh, well, it was a very detailed BIM model, let me say. And we have taken this and put it into one-click LCA, so the software that helps us analyze the embodied carbon. And then we, uh, we worked with Waterman's on the structural and MEP side to look at what it would take to take that building if we were to redesign it now and we took two options so one of them was a we called it the challenge model so we took that building and we designed it to something that would be broadly acceptable uh, to a developer so it's a low cement option in terms of the structural strategy Um, it still looks broadly similar it still fits within the um, the adjacent to heritage buildings that it sits quite closely to Um, But looking at different methods to drive down both the embodied carbon, but also really thinking through passive house principles to drive down the operational in-use carbon. So we've been doing some of that initial embodied carbon calculation and then working with Mark and his team to do the thermal modelling to look at what that means for the operational carbon and how that can impact on the MEP systems. Um, Once we really address that uh, facade first approach, and make sure we're, we're designing the windows, sizing them for the daylight and limiting the solar overheating uh, with the appropriate sizes. And we've also got a radical model, so that we've looked at, um, as we said, a more radical approach to um, different materials, so substituting out materials, making sure we're thinking about the whole supply chain, looking at, for example, more natural insulation, um, instead of uh, the, the unitized cladding with a PIR insulation that was in there. So substituting those out. 
and then um, yeah so then we're looking to go further with that option and see what it means uh, do we need to add more brisolet so it's just taking further steps in that um, we're just working that through with Waterman's to see uh, yeah see what that means in terms of um, inserting an atrium and also considering a CLT solution so a steel and CLT as the radical option. That's fantastic. Yeah, very, very impressive piece of work. And Mark, um, what's been some of the M&E, the mechanical and electrical challenges of, of working through this uh, these design options? Well, I think with, you know, every time you approach uh, something from a you know blank sheet of paper, it needs a bit of lateral thinking. And we looked at underfloor distribution systems uh, as part of the radical approach. Uh, we tackled it that way for a number of reasons. Firstly, that it, it, it suited the building geometry uh, and we could have on-floor air handling units. That actually, from a future-proofing perspective, unlocks basement areas and roof areas for amenity space. And Vicky was quite rightly talking about wellness and uh, and, and such like. Uh, and also, underfloor air systems also give us the option for in, increasing the amount of fresh air onto, onto the floor plate. Uh, and uh, perhaps uh, interestingly, as part of the approach, we, we not only just considered the day one embodied carbon, but we thought about you know M and E systems from a longevity perspective, because typically M and E systems only last fifteen to twenty years. So in a life cycle of a building, if they've got to be replaced, you know, three or four times, then you know, whilst they might have a low embodied carbon, uh, you know, proportion of a new build initially over the life cycle, that does certainly stack up. So underfloor air system, part of the radical approach, uh, was considered because it's minimal components. And that meant that, you know, the buildings could be cycled and churned and altered without a massive carbon penalty, and, and plus the sort of the penalties that come with components being replaced and repaired over the life cycle of a building. Yeah, yeah, so many different factors to uh, to consider. And and Simon, tell us a little bit about um, Legal and General's approach and uh, what you've been working on around net zero carbon. Um, I think sort of like most corporates, uh, Legal and General's made a commitment to be net zero carbon by 2050. Um, so over the last four to five years, um, the real estate business has been um, I suppose doing a lot of work to understand the issues involved and, and developing a sort of net zero carbon strategy, uh, which we sort of committed to achieve by uh, sort of 2050 uh, and using sort of science-based targets to uh, help us uh, along that route. So uh, I suppose sort of practically on, on projects, we've been... Uh, four or five years ago, we started trialling um, embodied carbon studies uh, on uh, refurbishment and development projects to see uh, whether by measuring the carbon uh, involved in the construction process and the design process, whether we could drive down the carbon content. And we also started looking at various modelling during the design process uh, to see whether we can drive the operational carbon of buildings down. Uh, so we've been sort of pioneering, along with a few others, the use of design for performance. So really attacking both the embodied carbon and the uh, operational carbon uh, of our assets to achieve the net zero target by 2050. 
And, and what have been the findings from those exploratory uh, pieces of work that you've done over the last four or five years? Is it possible, in, in your view, as an institutional uh, investor and developer to, uh, to, to reach the, the levels you need to? I think what we found on the embodied carbon is that um, I suppose typically a new build office when we started along this journey was had a sort of carbon content of around about a thousand uh, kilograms uh, per meter squared, thousand to twelve hundred kilograms per meter squared. The first scheme we sort of did a full embodied carbon analysis on, um, which was our two four five Hammersmith Road project. Uh, we drove the carbon content down to just over 800 uh, kilograms per meter squared. The latest projects we're doing are around about 750 kilograms per meter squared. So our target is to get down to the UK GBC sort of LETI targets of 600 kilograms per meter squared, which is really, really challenging on a new build. And that perhaps drives our thought process to perhaps doing more intrusive, significant refurbishments, if possible, rather than redevelopment, because certainly the, the carbon content of refurbishments is substantially lower than on, on redevelopments. So certainly on the existing portfolio and, and new acquisitions, our, our starting point is can we refurbish rather than redevelop? And I suppose it's a similar story on the operational carbon, which we're primarily using design for performance to help design leaner uh, buildings, which theoretically use less energy in operation. And what design for performance also does is it creates, uh, I suppose, an aggressive target for our building managers to achieve in actual operations. They know, they know what good looks like in terms of energy intensity and operation. Um, so they know what the building's capable of and they can uh, start managing the uh, operation and energy consumption of the building down to its um, theoretical uh, minimum. Absolutely, yeah, that's brilliant, thank you. And Vicky, uh, talking of uh, in operation energy consumption, something that we hear a lot in these sorts of discussions is that landlords can't control what a tenant does uh, once they've signed the lease and it's their demise over the threshold that um, there's only only so much that they can influence. Is, is that something you've, you've had to consider when you've been coming up with different sort of design frameworks for um, projects going forward? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point. I think um, the, the thing we're finding is that it, this is quite a step change. As Simon said, uh, taking that baseline level of carbon down to the uh, the LETI targets uh, aligned with the REBA 2030 climate challenge takes a lot of work. And so I think it's a, a piece, I mean, the end piece definitely is the users and actually educating the users and maybe it will be better post-lockdown because at home, I don't know about yourselves, but when it's cold, I put a jumper on. I try to avoid turning the heat on, heating up, um, whereas in the office, it's so easy to go to the thermostat. So we've been talking and engaging more with the MEP consultants and saying, actually, how can we display that user information? So thinking about, obviously, it's easier to make buildings smarter. We're used to that kind of technology at home as well. But actually, where in the office should it be displayed so that you can see the increase in energy use when you turn the thermostat up those couple of degrees? So um, I think it's not just the end users that we need to think about. Obviously, that's 
who we're designing for, but it's also making sure we're setting the brief right from the outset. So those kickoff meetings with the design team where we're going around the table and asking everybody there, the client, the structural engineer, the MEP consultant, everyone to bring to the table their own initiatives and how we can drive down the embodied carbon. So I think that's the only way we're really going to get there is with the whole team on board learning lessons from the past projects and making sure every project is building on that and getting better and better. Yeah, and, and are clients getting that? Are they, uh, are they, are they engaged at that point? Uh, some of them are. I think we're finding we're having to, in some cases, play back to them their corporate sustainability goals. So sometimes we find there's a bit of a disconnect between the aspirations and what's actually happening on the ground. So often it's really useful to say, well, actually, these are the things you say you're going to do. What can we do differently on this project? Um, And if it's a smaller client, they haven't yet set those goals, then we can talk to them about target setting. I think it's really helpful for all the work we're doing in London that actually uh, the London plan is really doing a lot in asking for the whole life carbon assessment. So actually you do have to analyse that early on. And we're finding that most of the boroughs in London have declared a climate emergency. And so actually we have to address those climate action plans. So I think the planning process is helping as well as as people catching up with the message. Yeah, absolutely. And Mark, when it comes to the to, to the money end of things as, as um, an engineer and working on M&E, um, I guess there's a lot of questions from clients when you get into the delivery end of, of, of design it gets more technical about does this come at a cost premium yeah I mean I think I think over recent years the biggest issue is that sustainability has been treated as a bolt-on it's almost design your office to comply with BCO which is an excellent guide but it is a guide and then say okay we've got got our base product now we need to make it sustainable so then we we add things onto it. And I think that naturally sustainable buildings need to be approached holistically right from the outset. And actually Vicky touched earlier on about fabric first. If you invest in the building fabric and make it efficient to control lights and solar gain and it, you know, and performs well thermally, then your M&E systems and your engineering should by default become much simpler. And I think that's probably where things have gone wrong. Uh, and therefore, you know, personally, I think simplified solutions, relying on the fabric to do the hard work is the way forward. So that cuts out the carbon associated with all the materials that constantly get replaced in the building and the engineering systems that go with it. So very much, uh, I think it's a, a less is more approach is, is, is the best way. And, and by default, that keeps the cost down too. Yeah, yeah. So, so can... Can these, these new approaches be done for, for the same or is it still going to have a, a, an impact on, on the overall uh, appraisal for a project? I know I think, I think with uh, sensible design, it shouldn't cost any more. I mean, there is always a penalty for everything we do. Uh, I mean, I mentioned underfloor air systems earlier on and very often with that, there's a slight penalty in floor area. But having said that, if, if the answer is by going for such a system, you, you uh, unlock roof areas for terraces and access to open spaces, then that brings a value to the building itself. So, you know, I, I do think there's a balance of these things. And, and if things are 
approached from the right way with a strong brief and you know right from the outset then then it doesn't have to cost much more right right simon does that echo with what uh, with what you're finding in terms of feedback from from tenants and what's happening with rents and and values around greener buildings i think the, the key thing from our perspective is to actually brief our teams in terms of what we want to achieve out of buildings so over the last year or so we've developed we've got a net zero carbon roadmap we've got a brief for sustainable works uh, and then there's three more detailed documents on social value wellness and net zero carbon and then we've got detailed specifications for different building types industrial offices which include our net zero targets so i think we you have to be really clear with your design teams what what you want to achieve out, out of the buildings I think our experience is that um, buildings that uh, are designed to deliver net zero carbon do cost more at the initial stage because we only develop assets that we retain in our portfolio. So we don't we don't do we don't trade. So we don't develop to, to trade an asset. We develop because we want to hold the long term asset. We take a longer term view on value. So our view is that a, a more sustainable net zero carbon building will have a higher longer term value. So we can certainly offset the increased costs of um, a net zero sort of building in our appraisals because we take that sort of longer term view on the uh, on the value of the building. Um, we think buildings which aren't designed to achieve net zero will be discounted in the future because if people purchase them, then they will want to improve those buildings to achieve net zero. So at some point, the cost of meeting net zero has to be uh, incurred either up front or at some point in the building's life cycle uh, out to 2050. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, and, and Vicky, I just want to move on to supply chain, um, which is vital in terms of materials and sourcing, transport of those those materials to the to site. Uh, how have you approached this in the the work that you've done with the the roadmap in the last couple of years? Yeah, so we've developed an in-house responsible sourcing charter. We've found on many of the projects they've been working on that actually, um, depending on the supplier, that actually a lot of them don't have all the information that you need. And uh, we, drilling down to it, actually, we found that the environmental product declaration is actually quite expensive. And because you need one for every single product that a supplier has, then actually uh, for a small to medium business, that cost can be quite exorbitant. So actually, we've developed this charter that considers responsible sourcing more holistically, looking at the whole supply chain, um, targeting things like modern slavery and thinking about the, the not just the distance traveled, but how it's traveled. And actually, that's really helped. We've got some really um, positive stories that have come out of it of businesses who've come back to us and said, actually, this questionnaire that we've worked with them on has been really helpful. They were kind of wondering where to go next and actually seeing this kind of um, traffic light system that we've developed, red, amber, green, has helped them to see where they need to put their energy and make sure that they're doing things more sustainably. We had an example of a joinery manufacturer who actually um, was able to make some small steps, things like um, thinking about the packaging as well. Instead of having plastic corners on everything that weren't recyclable, they've just switched to a, a cardboard 
solution. And then they've been working closely with a partner industry nearby and actually being able to share transport between the two so um, yeah so I think a lot of it is just talking to people and that's been that's the really nice thing about doing this work actually that it is so much about uh, everyone wanting to do better and innovate um, looking at all of the materials and all the different solutions that actually when you start drilling down into the supply chain you can make quite a big difference so it's not just that material for us for this particular project that actually it means that we've gone to them and then they can take those learnings onto all the future products that they're 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 giving on many different projects yeah that's that's really heartening to to hear those positive examples um and and i guess that brings us on to this issue of the skills deficit if, if there is one um some some developers maybe they're pushing back um saying oh we don't understand it it's not our job to understand it we the consultants should understand this but then maybe the consultants don't have the the resource to um to to skill up and uh, don't know where to where to start how, how do you see this being a big barrier in terms of um that getting the, the the expertise that's required around sustainability and net zero carbon through the the property professional world yeah i think that is a really big challenge so we're starting at home and we're running a series of training sessions and lunchtime cpds in-house so taking learning from this research project and then also bringing in speakers from outside talking on a range of topics from social value to passive house and making sure that we're investing in that uh, training in-house. So we've got several passive house designers, um, well AP, accredited professionals. So actually it's it's making sure that we have the knowledge in the business so we can help. And then we've been talking to the likes of uh, Turner and Townsend who are running with seven uh, London boroughs. They're doing a retrofit accelerator program. And the idea of that is exactly as you say, to make sure the supply chain is geared up and ready to do the work. Um, I think it's going to be interesting with uh, new buildings not having the need for gas in the very near future. There will be a lot of people in the profession who will need to retrain. Um, we've worked with housing associations before who've put in uh, MBHR systems, and when it came time to change the filter, they'd send out a gas technician. So I think uh, it's going to be something that the industry is going to have to get ready for and get geared up for. There's going to be a need for the whole the whole range of the supply chain to do some serious retraining and make sure they're ready to not only specify the systems, be prepared to install them well, but also thinking about the end user and the occupant, make sure that they can call up someone who can assist them in the very simple act of changing an MBHR filter. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see the role of reg- regulation in all this as well. With you know, with the, the, the carrot and the stick of, of people doing things because they have to. Um, Mark, do you want to add around that? I mean, Waterman must have been transformed by uh, the, the the rise of sustainability up the agenda in uh, the last few years. Yes, I mean, just touching on the skill set. I mean, we've had to invest a lot on training and upskilling all of our staff. I mean, we've got a, a carbon. Uh, performance team who, who will measure embodied carbon in a building and give that advisory service but you know there isn't really a it is a self-learning uh, journey where you have to upskill yourself so it does take some time and I think one of the 
biggest issues is we don't have enough reliable databases you know for products epds are very unreliable so at, at the moment it's it, everything's done literally from scratch in terms of the way we approach uh, you know looking at the carbon of different options and that's something we've been through with vicky but touching on something simon said interestingly touched on building performance and, and the importance of that and i think the introduction of neighbors uk which does seem to be taking off quite rapidly will, will transform the industry because that will start to really make the occupiers uh, and people who own and operate buildings you know scrutinize not only the initial designs but you know ask some real uh, questions about why buildings aren't performing and then very quickly i think the care and attention that goes into commissioning and handover will increase uh, you know and, and we should see things improve and uh, but perhaps interesting you know that might answer the operational carbon but then there really isn't at the moment uh, a, a satisfactory uh, rating system for embodied carbon so there's nothing actually to to really uh, you know act as a jurisdiction over whether someone's carbon figures are accurate or not and i think the industry needs that quite quickly yeah yeah absolutely different benchmarks the riba un Letty, um, hearing hearing that as well. People just want one guideline to to to, to follow. Just for those people listening that, that maybe don't know, just re- explain what that um, initiative was that you said was going to be important coming down the line. The neighbours, uh, yeah, yeah. The neighbours was is it starts in Australia. I think it stands for the National Australian Built Environmental Rating System, but it basically meant that designers uh, committed an energy performance for the building and then after occupation that was monitored uh, and you've got your accreditation if your building hit the targets that it promised in terms of operational energy and that's been uh, introduced in the UK through the Better Building Partnership that Simon mentioned earlier so it is taking off so we'll see more, and more buildings where not only do the designers make the promise of you know the energy a building will use but will be uh, held to proving it can do it and that puts pressure on the designers and the FM teams to, to properly understand the buildings and make them work and actually I think coming back to the point I made earlier if we really make our buildings too complicated they're never going to work properly because they become too complex to understand so you know taking things back to grassroots and looking at things simplistically will only help that I think. I think that's a really interesting point Mark actually we um, we're recently revisiting um, Windmill Green, which we did in Manchester, and it was a refurbishment where we added on, it was a, like an L-shaped floor plan. We we filled in the corner and then added some lightweight floors on the top. And actually, in talking to the consultant team on that project, they were talking about actually we need to go back to the make, do and mend, you know, when materials were more scarce, then actually that was helpful for the construction industry. And we're seeing that obviously happen again in small ways at the moment, um, that actually things like the waffle slab, using the formwork carefully so that you do use less cement makes a lot of sense. And I think um, in some ways it is going back to that being more thoughtful in the way that we're designing to make sure that we're not just using materials for the sake of it or even thinking about the aesthetic of it. Obviously, the most sustainable building is very also aesthetically pleasing. It will it will last the test of time, and it will be people will desire to refurbish it. 
Um, but even thinking about the uh, designing for the new, that maybe we need to think about that aesthetic of, of refurbishing buildings. Maybe it doesn't always need to be the shiny and new. I know, Simon, you talked about um, using the ra uh, refurbished raised access floor that actually it's okay for people to refurbish things and for them to be reusing elements and that they don't have to look like they're brand new, that it's okay to have some patina of age and that's perhaps part of uh, modifying or managing expectations of, of what that end product's going to be like. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on just something as simple as raised access floor, traditionally they've been uh, thrown away and replaced with new, uh, the, the, the embedded carbon content of a raised access floor is huge. Um, so typically we're reusing them, they can be refurbished, um, they can get a paint finish if required, but there's no need to sort of put a new floor in in every building now. And I think that yeah, the designers are going to have to start being much smarter about how to, you know, you can you can make a, a real improvement to a building's appearance up, update um, a sort of 1970s 1980s building very easily by retaining a substantial parts of the facade. It, it doesn't need to be reclad. So I think people are going to have to start being sort of um, much more clever in terms of the design, the materials they specify. Um, I think just on the skill shortage, I think. Uh, there is a, a huge sort of amount of upskilling that, that's required uh, as we've sort of grown our our demand for embodied carbon studies and operational carbon studies uh, over the last couple of years. We've perhaps been limited to quite a small pool of experts, but we're starting to see uh, a lot more companies um, gaining those skills by training um, because you know, we're starting to roll out these programs on more and more of our buildings. So there's going to be an ever increasing demand for these skills. And I think the, you know, we are, there is a limited number of uh, consultants who can provide all the, all the services we, we require. So it's interesting seeing uh, from our perspective, new entrants to that market, which is good because there is, there is going to be a, a lot more work in those sectors uh, for the industry. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. It's not just about um, doing doing the right thing for the planet and um, making buildings um, fit for the future, but also people protecting their careers and staying relevant for the the skills that are in demand as well. So it's uh, um, it's got that that added urgency there as well. I think. Um, now that, that that's great. Just before we we wrap, um, I want one big takeaway piece of advice from each of you and uh, Vicky I'll start first and put you on the spot um, what would be your big piece of advice uh, for anybody listening to to take away and start on on their journey down net zero carbon buildings I think for me um, and we've touched on it quite a lot it is this upskilling I think um, it's quite easy to access these podcasts and webinars that you can listen to while you're working so if you haven't looked at the UK Green Building Council definition of net zero carbon, have a read through that. And the Letty Guides of Embodied Carbon are really useful. They've got some great metrics um, and they're really useful against looking at different typologies. So I think that's great. 
And then also I think, um, although Passive House perhaps was always on the margins, I think it's becoming more to the fore in terms of achieving that uh, operational carbon, making sure we've got that fabric performance right. So I think it's making sure you understand those Passive House principles of uh, really low air tightness value, making sure the thermal performance is right, the glazing is sized for the daylight sunlighting and making sure we're dealing with that solar overheating. So for architects, it's it's a lot about getting back to the building physics and prioritising those uh, sustainable principles like the solar orientation on and considering the site and where you're building for in the first instance and then talking to the design team and making sure everyone's engaged with those agendas and you set those tangible targets that are followed through the whole project. Wonderful. Okay. Um, I think you've probably done one one for each there. But, uh, Mark, do you want to add to that? I, I think just make embodied carbon one of the key, key metrics of the brief right from the outset. Encourage the clients you know, to, to give it of equal importance as cost and value. Uh, and then really, once you've established that as the brief, then just question everything we do uh, from a convention perspective, you know, and, and ideally the best, the lowest carbon component is the one that you haven't put in the building, you know, so yeah, design sensibly minimize, minimize what we're putting into buildings. Yeah. And Simon, finally, last but not least. Um, yeah, I think um, over the last year or so, there's been, I suppose quite a bit of what's termed as, as greenwash and people saying, yeah, sustainable net zero building, and they're not really. Um, and I think people have to realise that this is this is really happening. Occupiers, and at the moment major occupiers, have all signed up to be sort of net zero carbon. Most corporates have, have made net zero carbon uh, commitments and occupiers simply won't take buildings which don't deliver their net zero objectives in the future or they will take them and improve the buildings um, and they will discount their rental offer uh, in terms of improving building so the occupier market is going down this road as well Um, the developers and owners like ourselves have made net zero carbon so we will develop and buy net zero buildings because our occupier base want net zero buildings. So the whole of the industry is going to have to rapidly move to deliver what the market's demanding. Um, And if they don't, the buildings won't let or the sale price will be discounted uh, because somebody else will take it on to improve it. So it's, yeah, people really do have to start um, seriously down, down the street and start delivering the buildings which are going to be required for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Great point to finish on. Thank you very much. Um, Thanks all for talking with me today. I've been Paul Unger, editor of Placetech. Thanks to my guests, Vicky O'Dilly from TP Bennett, Simon Wilkes from Legal and General, and Mark Turndrup from Waterman. TP Bennett is a multidisciplinary design practice of 320 staff focusing on architecture, interiors, and planning in the UK and internationally. For more information on TP Bennett and the services it provides, visit tpbennett.com.